Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Rory Devine is a developmental psychologist with expertise in children's social and cognitive development. He's an assistant professor in psychology at the University of Birmingham. Prior to taking up his post at Birmingham, he worked as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for Family Research at Cambridge and Director of Studies in Psychology at Clare College, Cambridge. He completed his doctorate in psychology at the University of Cambridge in 2013. Rory's research focuses on understanding, A, why children differ from one another in their ability to reason about others' minds or theory of mind and to control their own thoughts and actions or executive function. He also looks at what consequences these differences have for social, behavioural and academic adjustment. He's particularly interested in how early experiences in the family and at school shape children's social cognitive abilities. Wow, so much to talk about, Rory. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm excited. I hope this podcast can do justice to the amount of knowledge that you have and the work that you do. I think what's interesting for you is you know you're a researcher who's very interested in those earlier years that mm. sometimes I think research you know isn't voluminous maybe in that particular area and it's just nice to hear from someone who's got a keen interest on in those sort of toddler years and early right. years yeah so tell us a little bit why you enjoy that particular period of childhood as a researcher yeah it's interesting so one thing I remember um speaking to my old supervisor Claire Hughes about a number of years ago is this idea of there being these kind of silos in psychology where people work in really narrow age ranges in developmental research so they often either focus on infants or they focus on toddlers or they focus on adolescents or whatever it might be and one of the things I've been doing and tried to do a lot in my work is to kind of move beyond that and think about the kind of bigger picture how these things might all connect and interact and so some of the outcomes that I study are in older children and adolescents but then we often look at some of these early kind of caregiver child interactions that that might matter and and I guess one of the reasons I was drawn to that really was that there seems to be so much kind of dramatic change in this kind of early period that really clear and obvious to anyone you know looking at it but from a psychologist's point of view, there's so many different aspects and facets of caregiver-child interactions that you might want to tease apart to, to see what might matter for later on. And it's also obviously a period of great intensity between parent and child. So it's a beautiful sort of research opportunity there to hone in on, on those sorts of interactions. And let's start with that lovely interaction between parent and child. I'm already thinking so many parents over the pandemic will have really amplified and increased the time they spent with their toddlers. So they'll be interested in this. Give us some evidence-based tips around how can you sort of optimize that interaction with your toddler? You've got them all to yourself for a couple of hours on a Saturday afternoon. What do we need to know that you'd like us to know? 
Well, I've been thinking about this for a while. And, and, and one of the things I've been thinking about is this idea of what kind of things might we do as caregivers with children that could help enhance or promote certain basic developmental skills. So if we think about executive function, executive function is all about controlling yourself, controlling your own thoughts and actions. So it's this idea of beginning to kind of be able to override your impulses, your habits, being able to think flexibly, that kind of thing. And so what is it that maybe caregivers can do that would help promote that in children? So one idea that we've been looking at over the years through longitudinal research, so this is where we were essentially tracking the same families and children over time, following them maybe from early childhood onwards. And the reason we do that is that we try to be able to kind of tease apart things that might predict later outcomes from early childhood. And one thing that we've become interested in, in is this idea of contingency or, or scaffolding, as we sometimes call it. So this is an old idea in developmental psychology, but until relatively recently hadn't been applied to the area of executive function as much. So this is the concept whereby we're thinking about those moment-to-moment interactions that you might have with a child during an everyday task or activity. So it could be just playing together, for example, or with slightly older kids, maybe doing homework together, whatever it might be. But with toddlers, it might be just playing with a puzzle together, a new toy, whatever. And the idea is is about kind of tuning in to what the child needs in the moment. So it's not necessarily saying that one type of parenting interaction is good or bad, but it's the idea that it's contingent on what the child is doing. So with our research, what we, we showed is that in younger children, when we observe parents and children interacting around puzzles and, and games, it's this kind of dance between the parent and child that matters, right? So if the child is happy pottering away with the task and they're able to put together the pieces themselves, whatever it might be, a good idea of scaffolding there would be maybe just praising and encouraging, saying, oh, good job, well done, you, you got that one. And then if we've got a child then, though, who maybe struggles, so they're not putting in the right piece, they keep picking the, the wrong piece, that they, they can't seem to figure out where to start, it's then maybe ramping up the support. So it's this kind of going back and forth almost in a kind of a way that's tuned into the child. So we're thinking about the parental behaviors, not as good or bad, but we're thinking about them as whether or not they're kind of able to push the child a little bit more. And it's making me think how important it is in those interactions not to be on our phone, not to be reading a right. magazine, because to be, because it requires intuition, it requires yeah. observation. And, you know, we all know it can be tedious, for want of a better word, to spend hours doing that. We've all done yeah. it. But if we are going to decide we're going to spend that quality time, Let's make it quality time because what you're describing does require a lot yeah. of attention on our part. This is a really good point. So we've we've just recently done some work that's on its way out. It's in press and it's from this large scale longitudinal study of first time parents and their children. So it's um, children from the US, the UK and the Netherlands and a, a big longitudinal sample. And we were trying to figure out why some parents seem more able to get into this idea of scaffolding or contingency and others don't and one of the things that actually pops out in our analysis is that the parents who themselves are struggling with their executive function so if they're maybe tired worn out stressed and their own kind of capacity to forward plan to be flexible to be tuned in is challenged that can actually be negatively associated with the scaffolding so in some ways you get this idea that the parent's own executive function can impact on their 
behavior in the moment, which then in turn helps promote the child's behavior. So it's this kind of transmission almost of of our own kind of ability to control our our thoughts and actions to to children. And I mean, we've all imagined there's been in the scenario where a toddler is there and they're playing and the parent is interacting then the phone rings the toddler suddenly tugging tugging <sighs> for that attention so they're always calling us back into those moments yeah so there's really interesting work on this so one of the things we notice a lot when we work with children this age is that during even just simple 5 or 10 minute observations that the child might go off task right so 3 year olds 2 year olds you know, we're talking a couple of minutes at most, we'll gauge their interest and then they're ready for something new. And so one of the things we think about in those situations is, well, how did the caregiver respond flexibly to that? So maybe they thought about a new way of playing with the toy, or maybe they acknowledged and took the child's perspective and said, okay, I see you're, you're bored and tired with this. Let's try something new. And that's perfectly okay too, right? So what we're talking about with this kind of scaffolding and contingency behavior it's not giving in to every demand of a child obviously but it's it's kind of going a little bit with what might kind of support that child's autonomy their ability to kind of self-regulate so it is this dance and there is obviously you know real life things that happen like that that you you know for your own good and for the child's good you can actually be available in that moment and that's fine but yeah I'm sure you've been in many high quality early year settings to do your observational research and things. But when you see a great early years teacher, it's just everything that you're saying. You can see it, you know, how patient they are and they're just waiting and they're observing and they're giving them attention and they're scaffolding with nice questions and they're listening to them and they're very gently guiding them through activity in a way that is mesmerizing yeah and it does occur so this is the other thing i think one of the thing that strikes us about a lot of what we do and in the research we tend to focus on community samples right in our studies so these are just typical families and in the community and so we see a really wide range there are some parents who just are naturally doing this all their time there are others who don't do much of it. And then the most people are somewhere in the middle, right? It's a, it's a kind of distribution. And so what we're kind of suggesting, I think, with some of our work and what the evidence is pointing to, I guess, is that there are small changes that we can make. So if your tendency is to be someone who likes to be very hands-on, you might try pull back a bit and just let the child make a mistake or struggle for a moment with the pieces or whatever it is that, that you're playing with together so the, i think our idea is that the the kind of the part that might help the development of executive function is that kind of moment where the child has to figure things out slightly for themselves switch between things themselves that you know with the kind of with you on hand maybe to jump in if it does get too challenging or difficult but otherwise you know kind of hanging back i suppose the message yeah, I mean, it's hard for parents to hang back. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all stepped in and just put the piece in the puzzle. Yes. But what you're yeah. saying and what we need to be aware of is that we're denying a child an opportunity to learn and to, they have to be quiet and figure it out and maybe yeah. even complain they don't know where to put the piece. We have to allow that. We have to manage our own emotions within those yes. interactions. Yeah, and that can be really challenging as well, obviously, if, if it's a difficult interaction like you know, I've observed many, many of these interactions in our research and, you know, you do, you do see kind of meltdowns and, and things like that. And so it is about then kind of putting to one side your own kind of response to that and, and kind of just taking the child where they're at in the moment. And, but 
again, I just want to emphasize it's this thing of putting the piece in is perfectly fine, right? So this is what I think is really interesting about this idea of contingency. It's that if a child really is struggling, let's say they've opened a new Lego toy or something, whatever it is, and they really have no idea how to proceed. So this is where it might be good to be like, oh, here's, look, I'll show you how it works and do and a to model that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And mm. then step back and see if they do well. And then maybe next time, instead of a demonstration, saying, oh, can you try which one of these two pieces? You know, so it's kind of backing off a little bit. So you have to sort of not prejudge and wait and see where they are and then adjust your scaffolding questions accordingly and your responses. But yeah. often it is you know, effective parenting to sit back, to watch, to let them potter around and puzzle it out. But we are the best judge of that in those moments if we're giving yeah. them our full attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's right. I think you make a really good point. Like so often in our research, we're seeing parents under ideal circumstances. So we we, we set aside time for them and we say to them, you know, we're turning off the TV. We're, we're just asking you to do this for 10 minutes. So yes, you're right. Like I think seeing people in those situations is important and, and recognizing that, yeah, those kind of interactions probably do require our own effort, right? Our own kind of engagement and our own executive function in, in play in the moment as well. And I'm also imagining siblings, you know, together, it's it can become quite problematic. Is there anything that you could add about the juggling of that kind of attention? Right. And I mean, so it's not a huge problem in some ways in that, you know, there can be involvement of siblings, right? Like so, and obviously there's different dynamics between different brothers and sisters and siblings and things, but it's not always a bad thing if there is a bit of conflict even sometimes you know so there's uh, some of the research that Claire Hughes and others have done have shown that even uh, arguments and disagreements that might be quite annoying to listen to can be quite beneficial for just kind of practicing those everyday self-regulation skills because with a sibling you might be able to push it a bit further than you could with a kid in school right and by learning the consequences of that interaction and maybe having to wait your turn while the caregiver pays attention to the other sibling or something can itself be beneficial so yeah so it's not all bad we've got no. they're learning while they're arguing essentially. exactly <laughs> yeah now, parental sensitivity is something we've sort of alluded to it a little bit. You've mentioned sort of attunement, you know, tuning into mm -hmm. your child's needs. But talk to us a little bit about what the definition of parental sensitivity is in the early years and, and how important it is, if you've anything else to add what, that we've just Sure, yeah. About. So it, it, it is slightly different from, from scaffolding because in some ways scaffolding is often looked at in a very kind of task-focused way. We're thinking about a goal-directed activity, right? We're thinking, here's a moment where we're sitting down to play together or do homework together. Where sensitivity can be more just your general pattern of responding. So one thing I think that often confuses a lot of people is that psychologists and developmental researchers use the word sensitivity in a very specific way compared to what we might use in everyday English, where we might just say, oh, you're very sensitive, meaning someone might be like a highly strung or, or whatever it might be but I, I guess it's this I, I like your use of the word attunement and and the way we think of it we tend to be thinking about it in terms of how well you detect children's signals right and, and how well you respond to those signals so when we're working with very very young children like infants in the first and second year of life children that age don't have much language to rely on so you really have to rely on cues and signals and so sensitivity is all about this idea of Firstly, how aware are you of the signals? Do you notice little 
grimaces or scrunching of the face and, and subtle, subtle cues that infants might make. And then do you actually respond to those and do you do so in a way that's prompt and appropriate? So it's not just responding, but it's making a response that, again, is in some way contingent on what infant might be gesturing or signaling towards. Mm. So it's obviously a terribly important sort of concept. And is it linked to what are known as parenting styles? So what you're describing is mm. kind of optimal. If we were all using mm. sort of evidence-based approaches, <laughs> we'd be sort of authoritative and warm and loving. But tell us a little bit about parenting styles. I'm only aware of three. You might know more and how they impact right. on that sort of longitudinal sense. Yeah. So it's interesting. So this is a question we get a lot and, and often something we talk about a lot with, with my students and, and things like that. So one interesting phenomenon and in our own work that we've been doing over the recent years is thinking about moving away from broad ideas of styles and thinking more about distinct parental behaviors and, and ways of responding. And one reason why this is kind of helpful is that it, it takes away the idea that there might be good and bad parents but and instead thinks more about we can have strengths in certain areas we might not be good in some areas but we can have strengths in some areas so we can have different profiles of the kinds of things we do with, with children and our research has kind of looked at a range of different specific aspects of parenting that might have different outcomes later on so an example might be with scaffolding our research shows that scaffolding predicts executive function outcomes but not necessarily language outcomes. So it seems to have a kind of specific effect on helping children to develop their kind of self-regulation and self-control, but doesn't maybe have general effects on other areas of development. Whereas something like the home learning environment, this is an idea where we it's simply just a measure of how, how much simple learning activities are happening at home, whether it's going for a walk in the park, whether it's playing together, reading picture books together, that kind of thing. There's studies showing that that kind of aspect of the home environment can predict a whole range of different outcomes. So it's not specific. And so this gives us this idea that there might be certain aspects of parenting that would really matter for some areas of development, but not be so important for other areas of development. So that's how we've approached it. And this is called a kind of differentiated view of parenting, right? So the idea is that we're thinking more about specific aspects of parenting and not necessarily a whole kind of style, as it were, that you might have strengths and weaknesses in, in different areas, I suppose. I like the idea of thinking about it in terms of context. I think mm. parents like the idea of thinking about, you know, how can I make this time playing Lego mm. with my child on the floor as beneficial and optimal as possible? Yeah. How can the mornings work well? How can bath yeah. time, bedtime work well? I think yeah. that's useful because as soon as we start talking, as you say, about authoritarian parenting or laissez-faire parenting, as I've often done in my career, people might think, oh, well, I'm, I'm my children never go to bed at night, so I'm a terrible parent. That's not true. Yeah. But instead, it's trying to promote particular behaviors yes. that we know are hugely beneficial. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and this is what a lot of our studies show is that, for example, going back again to this idea of things that might help or hinder executive function, we've shown that things like scaffolding can be beneficial for executive function. But things like the emotional content or tone of your interactions with children can be harmful. So, on, you know, so they can kind of cancel each other out in some ways. So if a child is feeling stressed, if, if a parent has kind of 
you know, lost their temper or there's a consistent mood like that in the home environment, that's something that can maybe a stressor that can then dampen down those executive functions. So it makes it less easy for a child to kind of make mistakes and explore and, you know, learn those kind of skills. So I think there is some value in being able to kind of tease apart different behaviors and, and rather than trying to think how, you know, are you this type or that type? Uh, I I think it's helpful. Yeah. I think as well, what you've alluded to is how the parent is feeling Mm -hmm. and doing themselves will have an impact on any of those interactions, which Mm -hmm. I think people know intuitively, but it's important that we've had our nice cup of tea before we, you know, we sit down to play. We're ready for those sorts of interactions because they can be quite emotionally demanding. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think this is part of it. Like it brings me to there was some work we've done lately. I have this really great PhD student who's working with the moment, Shannon Francis, and she's been doing some work on some of the other work that we do on what we call children's theory of mind. So how good children are at kind of thinking about other people's thoughts and feelings, tuning into people's emotions and, and beliefs and thoughts and things like that. And one area that we've looked at over the years in our research is this idea that parents who use more what we call mental state language. So this is just when you reference things like thoughts, feelings, desires in everyday conversations. When children are exposed to parents or caregivers who do that, when we follow them up in longitudinal studies, these children tend to do really well on our standard tests of theory of mind, of of understanding other people. And so this gives us this idea that there's something about the content of those interactions rather than the amount. So it's not about these parents spending lots of time with their children, but it's just maybe about the kinds of things they're talking about that might benefit their children in terms of how they think of other people. And what they're valuing. So you're such a kind boy or what a lovely thing to say. Yeah. And also there's a little bit of emotional literacy in there, isn't it? You know, thinking about how we're feeling and how other people are feeling. So it's what you're saying is we sort of amplify that in at home it can have a sort of direct translation into how they relate to other people exactly yeah and so one thing that that shannon is doing is we've developed an intervention so very very brief intervention where you just explain to parents what mental state talk is all about (laughs) you know why it's beneficial very very simple and she's shown in her work that a 20 minute talk with parents about this is what it is this why it matters this is the benefits it can have. When you follow those parents up a month later and two months later and observe them directly playing with their children, they're using more of these terms and terminology. So it's not alien to people. People do this all the time, but it's just seeing if we can give people a little nudge to, to maybe turn those everyday conversations that you might have on the way home from school, whatever it might be, to just include some of that language. So, you know, what was the favorite thing you did today? Why did you enjoy it? You know, they're all mental words. They're all thinking about the child as an individual, with their own thoughts and feelings. And it's just those simple, simple little things that actually can make a potentially make a difference in, in children's theory of mind. And with that sort of mental, the language that you're referring to and the nudging, is that specific to a particular developmental stage? Is it most mm. more beneficial right. for a particular age range? A lot of the research on this is from actually younger children. So we are talking like maybe between the ages of two and five years of age. So preschool, early school years. And and Shannon's work that she's soon to publish is all about working with parents of three and four-year-old children. Our own longitudinal studies as well were in that kind of age range too. But there is some work as well from school-age kids 
where we can intervene with teachers. So this brings us to this idea of, well, beyond the parent, what, what might happen. And one of my colleagues, Serena Lecce, who's a researcher in Italy, she has developed a really neat little intervention, which is, I think it's a two-week intervention where kids just engage with short little texts. So we're talking eight, nine, 10 year old children, primary school age. The teacher leads some discussions around these texts. So just, you know, what do you think the character was feeling? Why do you think he felt that? What did you think comparing people's perspectives on the issue? And after just doing that for a couple of weeks, the children perform better on theory of mind. And then even when you follow them up two, three months later, they're still doing better than the group who didn't get the training. So what it suggests is that Although, you know, there might be maximum benefit maybe early on, there's still room for change. I think there's still still wiggle room right up into primary school potentially. And lots of methodologies for achieving that through literacy, through yeah. classroom work, through conversation yeah. in the car, if we're all doing it. Yeah. And and if we know it's beneficial, we're more likely to do it. So right. that's very exciting. Yeah. That's fascinating research. Is she a developmental psychologist yeah. as well? So Serena Lecce and I have collaborated over the last number of years on a few different projects. But Serena is a, a developmental psychologist based in uh, Pavia University in Italy. And so she's really kind of interested in how theory of mind might be changed in school age children, but also what its benefits can be, right? So beyond just being able to do better on our tests, does that have any impact in, in terms of your reading skills, like you say? Like, so one kind of non-intuitive thing that I, I sometimes think is that how can a social skill benefit reading, right? So, but it's really interesting. So if we think about like high level reading ability in, in even in primary school or adolescence, you know, beyond just being able to read texts, often children are asked to kind of infer what's implied in a text. And to do that, you have to be able to imagine what the author thought. So that's the problem of having to think about other people's thoughts, right? So it kind of gets you this idea that theory might, might actually benefit broader academic skills too. Well, funnily enough, my 12-year-old boy was moaning yesterday that he'd heard girls have an advantage in comprehension because they're much more able to put themselves I don't know where he heard this he wasn't reading any fancy (laughs) journals and I was like gosh that's an he thought he felt disadvantaged he felt this was the rumor going around that girls had the advantage in terms of empathetic thinking so is there any uh, evidence to support that this is one that I've puzzled over for a few years so We've done a lot of work. Uh, one one real passion of mine is thinking about children's theory of mind and, and what is it that makes some kids better or than others, right? So, you know, in all the studies we do, we show that there's continued development right the way from early childhood up to adolescence in your ability to, to reason about other people's thoughts and feelings. But even within any age group that you look at, there are really striking differences between children. So some children are super tuned in to what other people think, feel, know, want. Whereas other kids, it doesn't really matter to them. <laughs> They're less interested. They don't really know. And then most children are somewhere in the middle, right? And I think this is true of a lot of adults as well. You know, we've all been to parties and things where there are people who really know what's going on in the room and then others who don't. And so the work we've done with older children and adolescents seems to suggest that there are gender differences potentially favoring girls, but that these differences might only emerge in school age children. And we don't know why. <laughs> so it's one of these really frustrating ones where we, we keep seeing this. And this is even when you 
match the children very carefully on other tests of psychological abilities like verbal skills, IQ, things like that, we're still seeing this slight advantage for girls. So one possibility could be that there's different socialization happening in primary school, right? We, we know that in primary age children, there is a bit of gender segregation. So in this particular period of middle childhood, you know, you see girls playing more with girls, boys playing more with boys. There are obvious differences in between, don't get me wrong, but it's just that potentially the kind of engagement with what other people are thinking and feeling might matter more in one group than it does in the other. And it could be part of why they're nudging ahead slightly in that range. Interesting. Now, we have to ask you about social confidence. It's certainly mm-hmm. over, because of the pandemic, it's a question yeah. that a lot of educators are interested in is, are we witnessing a sort of depletion in social skills or other people are saying their children have never been chattier or more articulate because they've had so much parental attention? Right. What's your sort of reaction to that? And also what tips can you give from your vast knowledge to promote social confidence in younger children? So it's a couple of things. So the pandemic bit first is obviously really intriguing. And two years ago, when all this kicked off and we all had to go into lockdown, I had frantic emails from colleagues all thinking, oh, should we be investigating this, looking into this? What's going on? You know, this is a major kind of change in the way society is organized and children are being you know, wrenched out of their classrooms and everything else. And the issue is, I guess, from a scientific point of view, I don't know if there's much strong and reliable evidence yet to suggest that there is a problem. But I do want to say that, like, based on kind of what we know pre-pandemic, what what typically happens in development is that we know that peer relationships and interactions with teachers do matter for a range of different social outcomes, right? So we can't expect there to be no effect (laughs) of removing children from that situation. But I I do want to emphasize that I don't think this is something Obviously, the the pandemic situation is new, but even pre-pandemic, there was data from the World Health Organization showing that like 30 to 40 percent of school age children and adolescents will say that they don't feel supported by peers, that they feel excluded from groups. So it's a sizable minority. So even pre-pandemic, there's quite a large group of children who don't fit in and aren't feeling like they're connecting with their peers. And so my concern would be maybe that the pandemic would exacerbate that somewhat and that kids who may have been feeling that way are probably even going to be more isolated because they haven't had that kind of experience. That's one possibility. But the other thing, I think there's room for kind of optimism, though. (laughs) So I would say that I think we have to remember that children are really resilient. But we also have to remember that a lot of what we know from our research suggests that things like theory of mind and social skills are very malleable. They're subject to change, right? So in this age range, we see rapid growth and change and difference. And so even short interventions potentially could have long lasting effects. So I'm hopeful that it's it's not going to have some sort of massive generational effect, but we have to wait for the, the science to emerge on that. Another thing that teachers are commenting a little bit on is sort of children's adjustment behaviorally to going back to school post-pandemic it's something low level behavioral Mm. issues have been noticed a little bit more in some school communities and maybe social skills a little bit rusty and maybe you know difficulties regulating their behavior but would you imagine that's just a symptom of being away from school and not being in such a routine environment or is that something that you've heard about or Again, I don't have much data on it yet. And I think we're still kind of wait, you know, waiting for things to emerge about this. But I mean, 
anecdotally, I guess that could sound like, you know, difficulties of just going back into routine. Plus, I don't know how it is for you, but as an adult as well, I find it strange going back into the office and back into lectures and, and things like that. And I, and I, you know, I think we've all been through this huge disruptive period and, and for children, we have to remember as well that it's, it represents a much larger chunk of their lives, right? So for us, it's two years, whatever, but for, for an eight-year-old, that's a quarter of your life that you've had under these circumstances. So we have to acknowledge that too. So yeah, it, it's something that I think we'll have to keep an eye on over the coming years. And when it comes to, right, everyone talks about regulating children's behavior and toddlers are always learning how to regulate their behavior with our assistance. You've mentioned attunement and, mm -hmm. you know, paying attention in the moment and gently guiding them through those little ups and downs and moments. Is there anything else you'd love the world to know about regulating toddler behavior in particular? I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, I guess if we move to the, the slightly later age range beyond toddlerhood I, i'm thinking about the early school years as well and and the early years and i think there are things that we can do so i'm just thinking with executive function and self-regulation there are things that we can do in school settings that again can help support so it's, it's not just about putting all the onus on the child but actually maybe surrounding them with a, an environment or a setting that might facilitate that so one interesting thing is that over the last kind of two decades there's been an enormous amount of research trials basically looking at things that we can do at schools that might actually help support those behaviors in, in young children so at the start of primary school and beyond and there's some interesting findings that have come out of that work in that it doesn't seem like there's going to be an easy fix for, for executive function and self-regulation. So there's lots of commercial programs that people sell, like computer programs that you can sit down and, and learn to do different tasks. But what the research shows is that those things tend not to have much effect beyond that task that they train you on. So if you sit at a computer three times a day learning how to do working memory tasks, whatever it might be, it benefits that, but it doesn't have a knock-on effect in the classroom. But what research does show on the positive side is that the emotional climate of a classroom can matter. So there's a, there's a number of studies showing that teachers who themselves are supported, if they feel supported and they feel that they've got the right kind of support around mm -hmm. them, they can create a classroom environment that maybe um, scaffolds children in general to have that self-regulation. So there's studies showing that things like establishing good classroom routines rewarding or kind of highlighting children who do show those self-regulated behaviors as examples you know and there's lots of trial evidence kind of supporting those kinds of interventions that that teachers can do too yeah that's lovely so I'm, i can already imagine lots of ideas that can come from mm. what you just said that can be easily implemented in the classroom we've talked about the classroom and you've mentioned earlier about the home environment the home learning environment you know, it's exciting, isn't it? There are so many things that uh, perhaps it's not about your economic status. It's about what you're doing with your children, isn't it? The talking, the talking, you know, vocabulary, you know, all the little things, looking at them, turning the pram around, you know, having yeah. that dialogue. It's so exciting. This is the thing. One, one really kind of reassuring part of a lot of the work that we've done over the years is showing that things like family support, so the degree to which, you know, parents can provide kind of just structure, routine, participation, engagement with their children, it affects children's outcomes over and above any differences that might exist between families and socioeconomic status. So 
it seems to be a way to help you know so it doesn't seem to be necessarily something that means that if you're of a certain background or, or you know you certain income or whatever that's not going to damn your child in some way you know that there's simple free things that people can do with their time that might actually help support their kids when they're you know transitioning to school or whatever it might be the one thing i would say though i think there's research that points to confidence parental confidence maybe maternal confidence it seems to be Quite a lot of research saying if a mother's confident when she sits down to do that homework with that child, the academic outcomes seem to be a little bit stronger. So that would imply that level of education, for example, can have an impact. That's part and parcel of that home learning environment. I I agree. Yeah. And I think that's not. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to trivialize (laughs) these differences as well, either. I think that's a really important point, you know, and obviously awareness of, of these things as well is, is important. So there are some interventions like the one that my PhD student is doing that are simply knowledge-based, right? You're literally mm-hmm. just saying to a parent, did you know that if you do this, this, and this, it could have this output? Like that's a very simple intervention. It's not actually training the parent to do anything. And there's other studies that use that approach. And it does show that knowledge can be the thing that can. So just being aware of what you do as a parent can actually matter as well. Yeah, that's very exciting. So moving on, if there were five top tips, even three, we'll take three, Rory, (laughs) that you wished educators knew based on all of your research. And my goodness me, uh, you've done research on so many things. I've just I've got a list of your papers in front of me. But I love asking this question. You know, what would be the tips that you wished educators knew? This is a tricky one. So I was thinking about this beforehand. And I thought, First of all, I think it would be to maybe be cautious and critical of the things that you decide to implement at school, right? So there's lots of kind of companies and organizations that try to kind of sell things to schools, promising an easy fix, you know, promising them that if they spend this many thousands of pounds on this thing, you know, it'll improve children's outcomes. And there's actually a really great free resource that I, I love pointing people towards. It's called the Educational Endowment Fund. It's just a website and it's partly sponsored by the government, but it's got it just has a summary of evidence. And for teachers or practitioners in education, you can search whether or not the thing that you're being advertised actually works. And that I think is really empowering. So I think that's a good tip in general. <laughs> just, you know, like have a look see if the evidence stacks up is this worth spending all this money on or sending people on training for is it going to benefit the children in in a concrete way so that might be one tip i think i love that tip i'm always talking about education and diamond foundation you know before you buy the reading scheme for the school just have a look and see if it's actually value for money or if it's going to have an impact exactly yeah so that I, i think that's something i think is important The other thing I was thinking of was that I think teachers are already doing a lot of things that benefit the things we've been talking about today. So that benefit things like executive function and that benefit children's theory, mind and social skills. So one study we did recently looked at just differences between teachers in the degree to which they use mental language in the classroom. So how often do teachers actually just use mental words and mental terminology And then how often do teachers promote discussion? So maybe just things like, oh, Tom says this. What do you think, Anne? Whatever, you know, so just literally highlighting discrepancies and differences. And 
the teachers that do more of that, we found that the classroom performed better on our tests of theory of mind over and above other skills. So I think there's already things that teachers are doing intuitively, and it's just maybe being aware of some of these things. So again, it's that idea that maybe acknowledging that the stuff that they're doing during reading activities or that they're doing during you know, playtime interactions, these are all parts of developing those broader skills that I think benefit children. But yeah, and then if I had to give a third one, it might be something like related to that point, thinking about how we can monitor the success of what we're doing. So it's really interesting to me as a scientist, you know, whenever we approach a situation, we always think about, okay, we need data. We need data from this time point and this time point so we can see whether there's a difference, whether there's a change. And that's not always intuitive to a lot of people. So there are kind of nationally mandated government schemes that, you know, teachers must collect certain data, children must do certain things. But even just informal monitoring of how a child is doing relative to themselves when they started can be very helpful in identifying things like areas that they might need to work on or areas that they're maybe not doing so well in. So beyond just things like the the core curriculum outcomes of, you know, reading and maths and everything else, more thinking about where maybe that child's behavior as an outcome. So you know, so maybe, maybe they've had that. less behavioral points or less discipline. Exactly. Or they, yeah. You've witnessed more acts of kindness towards peers. Yes. And... So just kind of monitoring things in that way to show that progress is happening, right? That, you know, we might not pick that up in some of the things that we're doing at a kind of school level, but you might pick it up as the child comparing them to themselves previously rather than against some standard, I guess, that's out there. Now, let's talk about school readiness transition. Mm. I think I've witnessed you doing a very good talk once on school readiness, and I'm really, really interested in transition into school. So imagine you've got a child arriving into primary school next September. Tell us about, you know, school readiness in general. This is something I'm really, over just the last year or two or slightly more, the people I work with and myself, we've become really interested. We're actually running a study that's happening at the moment all about kids transition from reception into year one so kind of after you've mm. started formal education how do we continue that and so it's one of these things that even among psychologists among educationists there's no agreement on what it means to be school ready necessarily so there's policy documents talking about we need to have children be school ready but they don't necessarily tell us what that means and so the research seems to show that on the one hand, parents think when, when they hear school ready, they think, you know, knowing your alphabet, knowing how to count, those kind of things. They are very important. That's an aspect of school readiness. But teachers, when you ask them what they think is most important, often this, the research shows that teachers value daily living skills. So is the child able to use the toilet? Is the child able to um, put on their coat, eat their lunch themselves? You know, practical, basic skills. But crucially also, and I think this is where we as psychologists became interested, is that a lot of teachers value things that we would call executive function or self-regulation and social skills. So that they're actually talking about they want children to be able to sit still. They want children to be able to attend, take turns, like very, very basic things like that. And so School readiness is not just this kind of single skill, but it might be a kind of range of things that we have to think about when when a child is starting school. But there's also another piece of the puzzle that I think has been left out, and, and it's something that we've tried to think about, which is family support. So we often put all the emphasis on the child being school ready. 
But we have to maybe start thinking about to what extent is the family around the child ready, but also to what extent is the school ready to have this child <laughs> too? So this, it's not just thinking about this isolated child. Are they ready? Yes or no. But, but thinking about more broadly, maybe. Yeah, I really love that idea of paying attention to how parents are feeling, because if they're anxious about the transition, it's likely their children will be. Does the school understand? Have they audited needs coming into yeah. the school? So it's not just about having a school uniform and a new pencil case, is it? <laughs> yeah. It's it's about a whole host of things. And it doesn't begin in September, does it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, so this is one of the things we've been thinking about over the last number of years. So we we developed together with Claire Hughes at Cambridge, we've put together this um, very, very brief screening tool, which is a kind of way of thinking about a profile of how, how a child might be doing. So it's called the Brief Early Skills and Support Inventory. And this is, it looks at these kind of different dimensions of things that we might want to pay attention to when a child is approaching school or even in their first year of primary school. So this is where we're thinking about, you know, the self-regulation and social skills. We're thinking about the basic academic skills. So, you know, letters, numbers, those important things that are actually really predictive of later outcomes. Daily living skills. So can they use the toilet? Can they have their lunch? Can they dress themselves? And then the family support elements. This is the bit where it's thinking about to what extent can the teacher glean? Are the parents involved much? Are they, are, is the child kind of engaging in those home learning activities outside of school? Do they have a good sleep routine? All these kinds of things. And so it's a, it's a one-page kind of checklist. And over the last number of years, we've kind of used this to, to gather data about thousands of children from teachers all over the UK. It really has helped us kind of identify things that might be common areas where children fall down as they approach the start of school. But it also helps us identify things that might actually help children succeed or improve in that first year of school. So one of the interesting things is the most common things that we spotted were things like problems with sitting still. So this is something teachers, about 40% of kids have this. So it's not an unusual thing. So if a child is not sitting still, not able to attend, that's not an abnormal thing. About 40% of kids are in that boat usually. Problems with letters and speaking. So some even in the first year of primary school, about 30% of kids are still having a lot of trouble just following instructions, being able to communicate directly with teachers, looking after their own belongings. So some children are just leaving things all over the classroom, whatever it might be. That's again about a 30% of children. So these are really common things, but you can imagine that they're quite disruptive for a teacher. I'm, I'm sure if they're alone or with a one other staff member in a classroom. And then one of the striking findings was that one way that we tried to get at what was going on at home was we asked things that teachers would be able to identify from their daily kind of very brief interactions with the child and their parent at the door, maybe. And one telling piece of information that comes from the questionnaire is this idea of does the child ever talk about fun things they might do at home? And we found that about 25% of the, the children don't share any kind of experiences with the teacher about things they might be doing, like learning activities, reading at home with their parents, that kind of stuff. And those kinds of things that the family support seems to predict performance in all the other areas. So this was really interesting for us because we, you know, we were coming at it very much from, I guess, the, the idea of self-regulation and social skills, but actually the things that seems to be predicting everything else is this kind of very basic family support. And so I think it made us think, much more widely about what we mean by school readiness. So it, it's not just putting the onus on the child, but maybe thinking more broadly around the child. In a practical sense, any educator listening 
who wants to use that Bessie mm-hmm. tool that you've described, A, how can they find it? B, how do they administer it? Mm-hmm. And C, what do they do with the findings when they have actually generate them? Yeah. So firstly, it's available free. So this is something that we've made available for teachers if they want to use it. And we know that there are teachers in different parts of the UK using it. So it's on the website for the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge. So you just go on there. It's just cfr.cam.ac.uk. And when you go on there, there's a tab saying questionnaires and tests, and you can click it and find it there. And there's a manual. And it's a one-page document where there's 25 statements and you just circle whether or not you've seen that happening, whether you see it frequently or not frequently. And the scoring is then we basically, you can sum up how children do in each of these different areas. And what we've been able to do by collecting all this data is kind of work out either kind of scores that might be cutoffs potentially, where you might be more concerned about how a child is doing. So we've got a sense of what the averages are for children around the UK. And so a teacher might be able to say, well, they've scored really high on that there. So that might be something I should speak to the parents about, or I should maybe seek assistance from a Senko or whatever, maybe just to maybe have a second look at this child. So we think it can be used in that way, that it can potentially be a way of maybe highlighting children who really could be struggling. But another way that it could be used is just to see what strengths and weaknesses children have as as they arrive at school and then tracking their own change against themselves. So rather than using the norm, you're saying, okay, well, this child arrived like this in September. It's now May. How are they doing now? And, and so you can repeat it. the tool exactly intermittently and, and use it as a tracking tool. Yeah. So we've done some longitudinal studies using it where we've done it at the start and end of the school year. And we see children's performance improving over the year just through being in school. And we've seen that, you know, again, there's certain things that predict the greatest gains in performance. So that means like when there's family support, as well as obviously the teacher, you get better gains happening as well. And do you want schools to feed back when they use the tool? Do you welcome any interaction with you as researchers? Sure. I mean, at the moment, we're using it as part of our ongoing research. And we're always interested in hearing about if schools are using it and and that kind of thing that, that does help us understand it more. And in the past, that's how we've built some collaborations with our research. We, you know, the for some of the studies, it was through these connections of schools coming forward saying they had picked it up and used it, and we then would help them analyze the data, that kind of thing. Does it pick up neurodiverse learners? Well, so we've only preliminary data on this, but the cutoff scores that I talked about were actually developed when we gathered data on whether or not the children had any sort of special educational needs statement. So it wasn't specifically neurodiversity, but it could be anything. And we found that the test was sensitive to detecting those differences. So it would mean that if a kid didn't have a special educational needs statement, if you score above a certain point on our test, it might be a child who'd need further assessment, or it might be a way of maybe nudging and saying, okay, if I'm only allowed one assessment in this class for budgeting reasons or whatever, this child is really causing me concern and here's why. And the point is, we think it would give you some way of at least quantifying or justifying the need for that that child to maybe have a further assessment. Yeah, I can imagine that that could be hugely helpful with conversations with parents. You know, you're leaning on that little tool. It's not just observation based, but there's some framework. So 
Claire Hughes has done some work with some charity organizations who have started using the BESI to help monitor children's progress in the early years. And one thing the teachers there fed back was that they are using it as a way to start conversations. So they can say specifically to a parent, oh, they're doing well in all these other areas, but I am concerned about this. And it gives them a way to kind of point out something that might be you know, and you can say, well, compared to everyone else in the class, they're actually not doing so well. So it gives you some sort of data to be able to really quantify that decision mm. potentially. So just to be clear on the age ranges, a mm. teacher in which year groups can reliably use that screening yeah. tool? The age ranges, it's been standardized between the ages of two and a half and five and a half. So it's basically the early years period right up into reception, I guess, reception year one. So that's the kind of age range. Okay. And the manual that you described that accompanies it, is that easy for a teacher to use? And Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a Word document and it gives you a scoring tool. It just tells you how to touch up the scores. There's, you know, so yeah, that's something we would obviously welcome <laughs> feedback about as well. I mean, it, the one good thing was that the test was developed with teachers. So when Claire began the project, she did endless focus groups <laughs> with teachers figuring out what is it that matters to you? What do you think is most important? And from hundreds of different items and suggestions, we whittled it down to these 25 things. So okay. that's why we think it hopefully should speak to what teachers and early years workers need. Last question. Is there an optimal time in the year to administer it mm. if you're starting it for the first time, if you're screening for the mm. first time? I mean, I'm thinking back to when we did the studies we used it usually at the kind of end of the first term so like kind of near the Christmas period I guess and I think we also used them our feeling was that the teachers would have to know the children well right so that was our main kind of criteria so we thought let's leave people some time to get to know these kids and to be able to make that judgment. Yeah, that's nice. When we did the follow-up study, it was kind of, I think, the end of the first term and then at the end of the school year. So it was a kind of, I think, six-month gap or, or thereabouts between them. And obviously, I don't think you would be involved in any interventions. You have the screen. Mm. They've worked out the score at the end of the first term, but it's up to the teacher to use their professional knowledge to create some sort of classroom or individual interventions. Yeah, yeah. So we're hoping that these are things that, you know, teachers are experts in, right? They, they, They are all skills that they are familiar with and that they've identified. So our goal was to help create a tool that might capture that, you know. Well, we all love a tool. So um, I had actually heard about Bessie and it was so when oh. I heard you speak at a conference and I just thought this is, you know, I was writing to all the teachers <laughs> that I'm connected with saying you have to use this. It's free. It's brilliant. It's evidence-based and it can totally help you um, create some interesting data around the pupils that you work with, strengths yeah. and Exactly. Out, you know. It is good to hear. And we do, we do hear from different school regions that say that as well, that they've tried it out when you're seeing her and again it's just piloting giving a go and see if it helps the school that that you're working with I guess so yeah well Rory thank you so much for a fascinating interview for all the work that you do and we will be 
shouting loudly to all of our school communities that we work with within Tooldop about your research. So you'll probably hear back from us and we look forward to telling them all about the Bessie tool and, and all of your, you've got some fabulous recent uh, articles that you've published that we don't have time to cover sure. now, but we will come back to those and draw people's attention to them later. So thank you so much thank for you. your time and for contributing today. Thanks. Can I just as well highlight just one thing before I go? So there is a, a website. If there are any teachers or parents listening who might be interested in participating in some of our studies, we have a new study that's ongoing. We're always looking for people to be involved. And the website is just called readyornotstudy.uk. And you can find out about our research and who we are and, and everything on there. Okay. Ready or not study. study uk. Yeah all one word dot uk yeah. so brilliant so when we send out regular newsletters to school staff and we will put that in there um, later in the week brilliant. and let's stay in touch great thank you so much Kathy. okay thanks rory thank bye-bye Bye. this get a grip podcast is brought to you by tooled up education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.